0: Good evening, everyone. You'll uh, take your seat. We're going to get started. I think it's 7 o'clock. Um, my name is Judy Cooper, and I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt. And we're delighted to see all of you here this evening. Um, we're, I just wanted to mention that our new calendar of events is on the table back there, and please pick it up. Um, there is one correction, and that is that Craig Simon's event, which is um, listed as June 18th, is going to be on June 25th. On June 18th, we will be hosting an event for the author, Jen- the best-selling author, Jennifer Wiener. Um, we are very pleased tonight to sponsor this event with the Free State Legal Project, and it's my pleasure to welcome... Uh, Aaron Murky to the podium to introduce our guest speaker. Aaron?
1: Thank you, Judy. Thank you, uh, everyone, for coming. Thank you to the Pratt Library for co-hosting this event. Uh, I want to just share 90 seconds on Free State Legal Project. Uh, we've certainly come a long way with regard to gay rights from the time that the mafia <laughs> controlled gay nightlife. Uh, but I want everyone to keep in mind, as you... I uh, hear this presentation tonight that there's still 250,000 to 400,000 LGBT Marylanders, a very high percentage of them live in poverty. Uh, to understand why LGBT people are disadvantaged, you have to look back at this history of stigma and discrimination. You have to think about the older uh, same-sex couples who have been denied the economic rights to uh, marriage, the economic benefits of marriage for the past 40 years. You have to think about LGBT kids who are bullied and uh, kicked out of their homes, drop out of school. 33% of LGBT kids drop out of school permanently. These are the problems that we're fighting today in the LGBT community. The, The battle for LGBT civil rights continues to go on. And so I think that's an important message to share with everyone tonight. But I thank you for coming. I'm really excited to be here and welcome uh, Alex Hortis, who is my former colleague at Venable. Uh, It's exciting to be hosting an event like this. This is the first event like this that we've had, and I'm going to stop talking and turn it over to our author for the evening.
2: have to uh, follow Aaron, which is uh, always challenging. I, I do want to say a minute, um, Free State is really lucky to have him. He's a terrific lawyer and a really um, great guy. And uh, if you are thinking about you know making a donation, I would strongly consider Free State. Um, I want to um, thank also the Pratt Library. I actually did a lot of my research at the book here. I was doing a lot of uh, requests that, through the librarians and driving some of them crazy and I really appreciate their willingness to host this event. Um, I'm here tonight to try to convince you that the mafia um, had an awful lot to do with gay people and gay people had a lot to do with the mafia. And I know that this may seem uh, crazy to you, I've been told that I've been crazy when I've said this before, Um, but I am absolutely convinced of it. Um, How many of you watched The Sopranos? You saw the episode? Um, how many of you probably remember this storyline, Vito Spadafore, when the copper regime sees discovered in a gay bar, and Tony Soprano's crew goes crazy, and they and they go bonkers, and they eventually kill him. Um, and, you know, I have no doubt that there's homophobia in the mafia. The mafia has a lot of problems. Homophobia is the least of it. But, um, but I want to say that the history is a lot more complicated than this. And... Some of this is actually now uh, sort of co- co- confusing a lot of the fans of the mafia because they are used to sort of this image of um, you know, super heterosexuality and toughness, quote-unquote, and they don't see how that can be compatible with gay people. And I'm here to show that it was very compatible, actually. Um, here is sort of the outline of the presentation. I want to start with the historical conditions that led to this. Um, then I want to move on to the mafia's gay bars and nightclubs in New York City. And then I want to talk briefly about the Stonewall Rebellion. Um, it's against the mafia system very much at the time. Um, and then we're going to end briefly with a Q&A. We have a, also a guest here who's going to be joining us, Steve Shering. I'm sure a lot of you know him. And I, when I was doing some of the background on this, I got to talk about it. And he had some interesting stories that I'd like to uh, talk to him about as well. Um, so let's start with the historical conditions. Now, the sort of conventional history until really only about a decade ago was that gay people were in the closet and they were isolated and they had no connections to other gay people. Um, But then George Chauncey did this groundbreaking book uh, called Gay New York and his goal was to show that in fact, um, they had a very vibrant and very highly visible um, society that was open in New York City and it was actually relatively tolerated by the larger society. It was actually better to be gay in 1900 in New York than it was to be gay in 1950. So it's not always true that there's progress. Um, and you know, the reasons for that are really complicated. I won't get into all of them. But um, <laughs> essentially, um, New York... I'm going to show you some of the examples to start. This is a drag ball in Greenwich Village um, those are, those are men dressed in, um, in, um, uh, drag outfits, this is a huge event, this is in, what's Webster Hall in New York City, and this is around 1920, I never knew that this existed until I read the book, I had no idea, I assumed that there were sort of no out gay people until, you know, 1969 somehow, um, but this was an enormous, it was very well publicized, very well known, and relatively tolerated at the time, um, this is a party of lesbian friends in New York City. This is all. This is really key. This is all before 1930, and I'll tell you later why that's important. Okay, um, you know they, they, they were bold enough to have their photo taken, you know, um, you know dressed and dragged, and they had no apparently no concerns. And this was a very well known um, group of women, <coughs> and they were just out. Um, now, this is a cartoon from Broadway Brevities, and it's it illustrates an important point that's sometimes hard to to get in the in our current thinking. But in that era, they didn't really have what we think today as quote homosexual and heterosexual. Okay, what they were known as these are called fairies, um, and they were considered an intermediate sex. Okay, so you could see that that the masculine sailor loses none of his masculinity by going on this date with a, quote, fairy. And the reason is, is that the thinking of the time was it was more sort of functional, physical. And, you know, I think I've no doubt and Chauncey has no doubt that a lot of the men who, you know, were having sex with, with fairies were probably attracted to men and probably did, you know, identify as gay people, but they would not have necessarily sort of lost their heterosexuality. It would have just been considered something to do. Um, I know that's hard, hard to get, but because we have much more of a, of, of, a, of a dichotomy these days, but that was the reality. And so as a result, there's much more fluidity. Okay? You didn't necessarily lose your masculinity by you know, having oral sex or having sex with another man. Um, and so it's important to the story here. Okay, now comes along Prohibition. Uh, we all know about that. It, um, you know, makes uh, the booze life goes into the hands of speakeasy operators. This is Dutch Schultz. He controlled a lot of the bootlegging in Harlem. And, interestingly, he owned Club Abbey on West 54th Street. Now, what does Prohibition do? There's this vibrant gay nightlife, okay? but it gets pushed initially into the speakeasies, because the speakeasies are the only place that you could have a drink and have entertainment, okay? So this is the first connection, okay? So all nightlife, including gay nightlife, but all, all nightlife gets pushed underground into the hands of the speakeasy operators. So one of the, this is one of the biggest ones. His name is Dutch Schultz. He's the associate of the mafia. He's eventually killed by the mafia, this is Gene Ma- uh, Mallon. G. Mallon is an interesting person. We don't actually know a whole lot about um, him, and he did identify as him. Um, but he popularized what was called the Pansiac Show at the Club Abbey. And the Pansiac Show, the closest we had, we'd come, we would call it a drag show today, although it wasn't exactly that. Okay? But this was done under the auspices of Dutch Schultz. He was very happy to do it. Um, it was a wildly successful... The Pansiac craze in 1931-32, uh, it spread across the country. As far as ways we know as New Mexico, there were Pansiac shows that were going on. So this is during the height of Prohibition. Um, you know, and, so, and so the speakeasies are running these Pansiac shows. This is Gene Malin of the Club Abbey. Um, this is a, the New Yorker. Okay, they're not hiding anything here. This is the New Yorker. Club Abbey is an illegal speakeasy, but uh, the New Yorker decides to do an advertisement of it or a you know, sketch of it, and shows uh, the act, and shows the speakeasy. Uh, this is Gladys Bentley. Um, she did panziac performances in Harlem. Harlem actually rivaled Greenwich Village um, for <clears throat> the panziac shows, and there was a very vibrant gay culture in Harlem. You know, not everyone liked it, um, but, you know, it's, it's sort of an open secret that a lot of uh, members of the Harlem Renaissance were, were gay, and um, there was a very vibrant culture in there as well. Same story. It's driven underground, so it goes in the hands of bootleggers and speakeasy operators. Um, now, this, um, you would never imagine that this was uh, made in 1933. It's from Arizona to Broadway, and it shows you exactly what people knew at the time, but the history has since been lost. And that's the fact that gangsters um, had Drake, Drake show performances, and they didn't have um, any a lot of hang-ups about them. As you'll see in this. Are you ready? That's the impersonator? But well, we want you to do some entertaining.
3: Not that's our boss, Tommy Mott. So this is the a. <laughs> Calm yourself, fella, calm yourself. How can I be calm when every vein and sinew was positively sizzling? Hard fermenting, hard fermenting. Hey, how do you get that way? You can't get away with this. Come on, Sugar. Everybody likes you. Why don't you be a good kid, huh? <laughs> well, Broken Handsome, why don't you come up and see me sometime? <laughs> you know, it was pretty good of you guys to come up here and help me out Now listen, I'm putting on this show and it's got to be a hit So I'm asking a nice way to go out and do your stuff But this is ridiculous How in the world do you expect anybody to be funny under these conditions? Now you don't mean to tell me you ain't going out there and make those people laugh Well Because if you don't, I'll know where to find you Oh, I'd just be good guys, and I'll consider a personal favor.
2: Okay, so that's uh, So as you can see, you know, it's uh, they don't, you know, you don't see as you do in the Sopranos, like oh my God, they're gay, you know, they, you know, oh my God, they're dressed in the clothes. No, this was actually some based on what we know, the interviews with bartenders who worked in a lot of the gay bars. This was, you know, sort of the dynamic that went on. You know they had performances and they and and, and they worked with a lot of uh, gay performances that they put on you know put on in these clubs. Um, this is uh, one uh, one other short clip. It's called uh, "Caller Savage," 1932, and uh, it shows Greenwich Village. I just, the only point is I want you to see uh, what it was like in Greenwich Village. And there was kind of a funny line that became infamous. He, they they couldn't say pansy act. So they say only wild poets and anarchists eat there. It's pretty tough, you know. You know, I usually hear wild poets as being pretty tough, but that's but that's how they describe them. And so, um, and this is another pansy. And he's dashing up and down the hall. <laughs> 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 it's a fairy
3: pajamas
4: I should see. I know la would scare the knife that of me
5: on a great
0: big battle ship you'd like to be
6: What do you see? the
2: oh. <laughs> So, um, you know, these are, these are popular, you know, major uh, Hollywood movies, and people were not actually shocked at that time. Um, They would have recognized this if you were in New York. Much of the film industry was in New York. They would have recognized these characters. It was simply well known. It's only, you know, as as George Chauncey described, it's only because we've lived through this long closet that we forget about this earlier history, okay? But it was very open and very, very out. And, and, And it was well known. Okay, now this is the key turning point. 1933... There's a panoply of anti gay laws that are enacted, ironically, after prohibition. So, after alcohol prohibition, we have what amounts to gay prohibition. And we're not really sure why this happened. There's a lot of uh, debate about what exactly happened. There's some ideas. You know, a lot of men were losing their jobs, and so maybe their masculinity somehow was challenged. You know, there's nothing that that people have, have been able to really. Kneel down. But there also was also a sort of a revolt against the quote, the excesses of prohibition, the excesses of drinking and homosexuality. Um, you know, we just don't know. But there's no doubt about what happened. And that is a severe imposition of a closet. And it was done in, in a variety of ways. The biggest one was the, the new New York State Liquor Authority. Um, they enforced the statute that says no person shall suffer or permit such premises to become disorderly. Now on the surface of it, that doesn't <coughs> sound, you know, uh, you know we would have a disorderly statute in any situation. But the courts allowed the New York State Liquor Authority to interpret disorderly to mean serving gay people. Just the act of serving a drink to a gay person in a bar was made the bar disorderly. So, as you can imagine, anybody who's ever, you know, run a restaurant or a bar, being threatened with your liquor license is like a death sentence. So, the New York State Liquor Authority um, eventually closes hundreds of gay bars, um, it also uses New York City police to do this. So anytime they think they know that there's a gay person in a bar, they will threaten to shut it down. There's also laws against, quote, impersonation. These laws were you know, intended for you know, very reasonable purposes uh, that you won't you know, pretend to be somebody else, but they were used for um, you know, dressing in opposite-gender clothing. Um, NYPD also takes over cabaret licensing, and that matters, too, because the NYPD, um, in this era, is extremely corrupt. Um, it's very decentralized. There's a lot of opportunities for graft, for bribes, for exploitation. And so the NYPD um, becomes a massive bribe-taking um, entity in, in, in this era. Okay, now let's go to the mafias, gay and lady clubs. Now, okay, so now we have the legal backdrop and the historical backdrop. Now let's introduce the mafia. This is Vito Genovese. Vito Genovese is the underboss to Lucky Luciano. He um, came up in Greenwich Village. Um, a lot of people don't know that Greenwich Village had a large um, South Italian population, and that in itself doesn't mean that it's mafia, but it's sort of the necessary predicate to, have, um, to be able to have him operate. And so Vito Genovese comes up through Greenwich Village through his crew, and he sees all these bars being shut down, and he says, I know how to deal with the police, I know how to hold them off, and I can make a buck off of it, and I can have a monopoly off of it. So Vito Genovese's crew, and this is you know writ large. You know I'm oversimplifying, but this happens in Greenwich Village, but it happens you know in Times Square, it happens out in Long Island, it happens in other um, areas with a, with a large gay population. Um, this is Greenwich Village, of course. Um, the lower part is the South Village. This is a mix of, of course, Italians on the South, and you have artists, bohemians, um, homosexuals, um, poets uh, in Greenwich Village. Wild. wild poets. that's right. Wild poets. Okay, now this is an interesting dynamic, and I always like to tell this story. This is, this is a wild couple. Okay? This is Vito Genovese. This is his lovely wife, Anna Genovese, and I promise you she's not as scary as she looks in this. Um, but... They have this really dynamic, tough relationship. Uh, they love each other, they hate each other, you know, we've all been there. Um, and so she's um, actually actively involved in the bar scene. Um, and, and along with them is Steve Franz. Steve Franz is the mob manager for Vito Genovese. He did, runs a lot of these bars. Unfortunately, we don't have a picture of him. So um, I just want to run through the family members real quick, just so you can see, and then we can go to, you know, their their actual bars. But things don't go so well for Steve Franz because he gets caught in between their marital problems. Um, All of a sudden, uh, Anna Genovese says she wants to divorce Vito Genovese and threatens to start naming all of her underworld assets. And so the underworld is not happy about this. They, they tell her to kill Anna Genovese, but instead he blames Steve Franz. And so he has Joe Valachi kill Steve Franz. And so we have the first sort of uh, mob manager of gay bars who was killed in 1953. Um, this is Anthony Tony bender Strollo. He takes over um, for... Uh, Steve Franz. He's a capo regime the Genovese family, and he does pretty well. He runs a lot of the bars until 1962, when you can guess, he crosses Vito Genovese. Um, he ends up disappeared. No one really knows what yeah. happened to him. They never found his body.
6: <laughs>
2: right. So he takes over for this is sort of you know that that, that line about not wanting to be the the, the, the number three in Al Qaeda. Well, this is uh, you, you don't know. want to be a copper regime in the Genovese family. This is Tommy Buli. Tommy Buli takes over the gay bars in Greenwich Village. Um, he does very well. He actually outlives Vio Genovese, but he too is killed by a rival in 1972. Now let's get to the clubs. This is the Howdy Club. This is the first openly. Um, lesbian bar in New York that we know of in New York City it's a nightclub it's a very nice nightclub it's in Greenwich Village it's managed by Steve Franz this is a promotional photo um, they were you know and, and we have to keep in mind it was illegal to even serve a drink to a gay or lesbian person in this era but the mafia's power was such that they could flaunt it by having these shows and they, could, they knew that they could they could stand up to, to the to the cops okay so this just shows you to give an idea uh, of, of just how powerful the mafia actually was in New York City. These are soldiers at the Howdy Club during World War II. The Howdy Club kind of became famous among gay G.I.s who were stationed. There's a lot of actually moving memoirs of people who, for the first time in their lives in a lot of cases, met other gay, gay men out in public, and they didn't think this was even possible. Um, and this is at the Howdy Club. This is the 181 Club. Um, obviously, this isn't how it looks today, um, but this is the exact same building. It's a movie theater now. I'd actually gone to the movie theater for years before realizing this, but it's called the 1A1 Club. It's called the Homosexual Copacabana, and by all descriptions, it was very opulent. It was a beautiful uh, you know, space. Um, I'll let the, you describe them. This is not the 181 Club, and I'm sure someone's disturbed that I'm using their house for this, but, <laughs> but it's the closest representation I could get with the stairs and the coloring. Um, and this is one of the waitresses, and they just said they were really, they were very proud to, to have worked at the 181 Club. And again, this is, we have to keep in mind, this is the era where people would, you know, would be destroyed if they were found out that they were gay. People would, would undergo a social destruction that would be, um, you know, devastating. They would lose their jobs, they may lose their families, they may be a divorce, they may be prosecuted. We often forget that there was a legal closet here. It was it was illegal to be out in New York City and quote be gay in the 1940s in the in the early 1950s. Cops would arrest you and, and haul you in, as we'll see. Um, this is Tony Pastor's downtown. This, is, this guy's name is Joseph Cataldo. His nickname, not mine, that I gave him, was Joe the Wop. So his name was Joe the Wop, and he ran Tony Pastors downtown. This is, for lack of a better term, the first sort of lipstick lesbian bar. This is, um, uh, you know, lesbians that like to dress up, and they, and they hit on other women. And so this is called Tony's Pastors. It lasted, a very, this, it lasted over 20 years. It was sort of the destination spot. Um, for lesbians in New York City. And this was run by uh, Joe Cataldo, who is another Kappa regime in the Genovese family. This is the 82 Club. So after the 81 Club closes down, um, they open up the 82 Club. And again, this is an era when it is illegal to uh, have impersonation into legal have bars, and here's the mafias advertising it. Right. So it gives you an idea of the clout that they have to be able to stand up to this. And this, you know, I, it, this was not easy to keep these places open. There were tabloid journalists that were saying they called this the most famous fake joint in the country. And it was, well, it was very well known. And they wanted city officials to shut it down. Okay? But the mafia's power was such that they could openly flaunt these laws. Well, everybody else was crumbling and folding, where there were no other gay bars or nightclubs other than mafia-owned. They were running them. This is an interior of the 82 Club later on in the early 60s. Um, It's one of the rare scenes inside. Um, You know, the audience was was sort of a mix. You would have straight couples that would go to sort of gawk um, and quote slum, but you'd also have um, you know, the majority would be gay people, some of them would be closeted, but in these clubs they could come out of the closet and they could be who they are. Um, And then the other third group were racketeering gangsters. There actually were quite a few gangsters that hung out at their own clubs. And so it was was quite a mix um, that they had at the 82 Club. Now, um, this is an interview with a bartender, it's from the One National Archives in Los Angeles, and he has surprisingly fond memories of working at these clubs and I just wanted you to hear him briefly talk about what he thought the problem was with the system
3: it was the game yes yeah. okay okay so and the, how the bar, well you paid off the bar people were were somewhat responsive then to the to the patrons because they would try to warn very protective patrons. of them yes but of course it was for their own ends because they were in business uh, I felt that way for a, for a while But getting to know these people... uh, There was a a camaraderie that was kind of (laughs) nice. I know that sounds silly, but... They're they're painted to be, you know, just mercenary people, and they're not. They're human beings. And they're they're people that like gay people. And they knew that they had gay people working for them. And they treated us with a great deal of, of care. I was the most insulated of my life. I was the safest on the streets of New York that I have ever been. If anybody ever threatened me or intimidated me, I had recourse that I never had as a civilian or as a private citizen.
0: Did that include the police? That
3: includes the police. I had been stopped by police while I was working at the bar. And no matter what the infraction might have been or might not have been, or what the harassment might have been going down, all I had to do was give them the name of my employer and they released me and let me go because we were both working for the same people
2: so it's a great sense of humor but it really was was true, the cops really were an appendage to the mob in a lot of cases and, I, and there's one other clip I wanted to hear Because he has an interesting take He, he, he essentially he's, he's being sort of pressed by the interviewer You know isn't the mafia terrible Isn't it awful And, and he sort of hedges And he said they Well you'll, you'll have, have him talk for himself
0: Perhaps because it was so known
3: Had a tinge of subterfuge But at this point They were so blatant about it, Mm. and they were so blase about it, and they were so cocksure of their corruption that they really didn't give a shit whether you saw them in there or not. Do you think that the gay populace was aware? No. I know they weren't aware. I had first knowledge of that. I had to defend the family more than once, and have so far. I find no fault with what they were doing. It was a setup that they moved into and maintained. They did not create that environment. The environment was created before the family took it over. It's so interrelated and convoluted, you can't really define black and white, right and wrong, good guy, bad guy. Because I found in my own life, my head was constantly being changed. And the good guy to me was what was used to be the bad guy. And the bad guy became the precinct sergeant, or the judge downtown, or the plainclothesman that came in and and made caustic remarks about gay people in a gay bar. Knowing full well that he he was in a gay bar and who had nothing but contempt for gay people and who threw a whore down on the table and mounted her in a gay bar and ran around the bar with his pants around his ankle shouting obscenities to the gay people. That is my idea of corruption and that was a policeman. That was not a member of the family. The family had much more dignity and were much more reserved than any policeman I ever met in New York.
2: So uh you know, I I think he has some some interesting points. I, I I you know he there you know, some of this I'm sure is covered by nostalgia, but at the same time he has a point. The cops really were brutal to gay people and they treated them inhumanely and at least the mafia had a had a place where they could they could live. Now people often ask me, is there a gay mobster? And I'm a little reluctant to, 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 to answer because well first of all we just don't know. I can't get into their mind. I don't know. Um, how they identified, um, but there certainly were um, mobsters that um, had sex with other men. Um, the most uh, clearest example that I can find is a guy named uh, Joseph Crazy Joey Gallo. Does anybody, has anybody heard of Crazy Joey Gallo before? Yeah. Now you probably know him through other things, right? He has a Bob Dylan film or uh, song. He was kind of this hipster mobster. So he had sort of a quasi political agenda, although it was mostly just you know a cover for being a racketeer. But he you know he he thought he was like a, you know kind of a cool guy. But anyway, he would openly talk about how he had sex in prison, and it was normal, natural, and unremarkable. And he continued to have sex um, afterwards. We know from um, other people who, who said that that uh, that he had many partners. He also owned um, the Purple Onion, which was a gay bar in Greenwich Village, and he unfortunately also shook down a lot of gay bar owners, um, and he made a lot of money off the jukeboxes. The reason his name, nickname is Crazy Joey is because he used to beat people up if they messed with his jukeboxes, um, and he had sort of these vending machine monopoly in New York City. Now, there were enormous number of problems with the mafia monopoly. You know, the, the, I don't want to get covered up in nostalgia here for, for the good old days. These weren't the good old days. They were interesting times and bad old days. But um, there were big problems. First of all, um, you couldn't run a legitimate bar in New York City and Greenwich Village, without being cut in by the by the mafia, they would show up in your door and they, you know, they give the the same kind of implied threats. It'd be a shame if anything happened to this nice establishment of yours, and I think you should ask, you know, get protection. Blah blah blah. You know, you you've heard it. That that really did happen. Um, for the patrons, there were really high prices for lousy amenities because anytime you have a monopoly, they don't have competition, and so they had, you know. I've showed you like, the more glamorous ones, and those were glamorous, but that's because they were also competing for straight uh, clienteles and straight bar um, customers to come in. Um, but most of the gay bars were frankly dives. Um, they had what was called Mafia House Beer, Mafia House Beer, no one knows actually what's in Mafia House Beer to this day. (laughs) Mafia House Beer is whatever can be stolen off the back of a truck, or whatever can be hijacked, um, or whatever can be stuck up at a store. And then there's these stories how they take doer's bottles, they empty the doer's bottles, and they'd fill it up with swill and, and water and God knows what was in it. And then they would charge two or three times um, you know as much as you pay for anything else. And it got to the point where people would say, I just I can't drink tonight. Uh, I have no idea what I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then what what caused what, what eventually does cause the Stonewall riots. Um, are the show raids by the police. Because even though they were bribing the police, there was still such animosity towards gay people that they had to at least put on a show. So they would have routine show raids. Um, and if you got anywhere outside the bar, you, would be, you, could, you, know, you, could, you could be arrested if they thought you were gay. Um, and so they, they put on these show raids by the police, most intensely um, in the village. Um, and the mafia would be tipped off about it, and so they would take their cash out of the tills um, ahead of time, and they would maybe tell their employees, maybe one or two close people they're really close to, but then the other people would sort of be subjected to these humiliating show raids. Uh, This is a police wagon. Um, They're being arrested for the crime of dressing as a woman um, for being disorderly. This is a police wagon. I really love this photo because you see, even under this 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 terrible circumstance, you know, you know, she's really proud and she still has pride in it and she's posing for 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 a camera here. They used to, the the joke used to be, oh, this is my stop, dear. I have to get off at of this precinct, and they would say, <laughs> and they would get off and, and go in. And so you know, they had a lot of dignity even under you know really difficult circumstances. Um, this is a very typical bar raid, very typical scene. You would, you would have seen this in New York City at some point every weekend in New York City in, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and you can see, you know, he's covering his face because, you know, the rest is bad enough, but if you are discovered to be in a gay bar on a morals charge... This could cause a destruction of your life. It, it, you know, you could lose your job, you could lose your family, you'd be disowned. Um, you know, you'd be a degenerate, blah blah blah. And so, it was a really um, horrible um, conditions to live under in the, especially the '30s, '40s, '50s, and early '60s in New York City. Okay, the Stonewall Rebellion. Um, th- I want to. Um, just talk briefly about what the Stonewall Inn was, because we often forget what it actually was and still is, and um, and why the mafia was involved and why it came to a head here. Okay, uh, Stonewall was secretly owned by this guy, Maddie the horse, Ionello. He's a cap regime in the Genovese family. He actually dies a natural death, so he, he he's okay. But <laughs> but uh, but he was a long, He was the hidden owner of the uh, Stonewall Inn, and so he would take a cut. Uh, the Stonewall Inn uh, had no running water behind the bar, so they would dip um, use glasses in a basin of cloudy water and then reserve it with to another person. Um, there was actually an, an outbreak of hepatitis because of this. Um, there's no fire. There's no fire escape. Um, it, you know, again, the the, the drinks are, are are terrible. They stole they they sold illegal swag out of the out of the back. Um, And, but the Stonewall was one of the few places that the police allowed there to be dancing between men. Um, And so it became a home. And it had a lot of connections for for gay men in New York City at that time. This is Officer Seymour Pine. He was the the, the officer that led the raid on the Stonewall that night. Um, David Carter, who's another historian, interviewed him when he was alive and came away convinced that his goal that night was not actually to raid uh, gay people, it was to go after the mafia. Um, And I'm not, you know, I wasn't privy to it, but I will say the newspaper headlines say um, that the Stonewall was known to be owned by the mafia and that there were other indications that they were going after the mafia. There was a there's the story that's come up in books that there was a, a blackmail ring that was being run out of the Stonewall. Um, and this was the officer. So he led it. He was actually a veteran. And when he went into the Stonewall that night, he said it was an experience that rivaled his, his, his situations in war. Because for whatever reason, that night was just the last night that there was going to be a raid. Okay? And so the patrons fought back, led first by the drag Queens, and they uh, start throwing pennies at the cops and say, here, coppers, take this back. Hey, you already got your, your payment. What are you doing? Come back. So they start physically fighting back. They drive the police into the stone wall. And, and, the, and, and, the, and the owners lock the door. Um, and then they try to negotiate, and, 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 the, and, the, and it's a really dramatic scene from everybody who's been inside there, because Seymour Pine went around to each person, who said, don't shoot. If you shoot, you're going to end up in Staten Island walking, walking a bridge, okay? You don't fire a gun in this situation. And so there are um, hundreds, of, hundreds of, of people that are you know, hurling rocks, hurling rock, you know, stones, they're calling them names. Um, pushing them around and it's it's sort of a it's sort of a small miracle that nobody got like killed this is a police cordon they actually retreated the police retreated here Um, and they were sort of cordoning off Greenwich Village they're trying to limit the the inflow and outflow of it Um, this is this is the event Um, this is Stone Rebellion Um, they were very proud to have taken it back And um, Steve is going to raise some interesting points about what happened actually after Stonewall, but we'll get to that shortly after, because I think that's sort of fascinating, too. But um, this is the night after Stonewall. There were sort of these standoffs throughout Greenwich Village. Um, Now, this was the anti-mafia pamphlet that was distributed at Stonewall. And they're very explicit. They just say, get the mafia and the cops out of gay bars. Um, they were very aware they were caught in this awful system. And so they wanted to get the mafia and the cops on the bars. Uh, you can see the rationale here. Um, these are two other statements that, that people said at the time, um, which also shows that the mafia was very much on their mind. The mafia system and the police were very much um, on their mind when they were rebelling. Uh, Morty Manfred's is an interesting guy. I actually met him. Um, but you know he so said, "Why do I have to go to you know bars that's run by organized crime? It's not my fault." And I this is this is in my book, and I thought it was just sort of a perfect haiku. It kind of summarizes: gay prohibition corrupts cops, feeds mafia. And this is on the on the on the wall of the Stonewall Inn, and I think it sort of perfectly sums up the situation. Um, and you know I would you know just to, just to give a my own point, you know a lot of the times when people are writing the anti-gay laws, they they had this idea that gay people were just going to disappear somehow, or, or you know, they'll just go away or something, you know. And the, you know that obviously doesn't happen. Gay people instead have to go underground, or they accept worse alternatives. Um, but they don't just disappear. Um, and so I think it, you know, I think that's a larger historical lesson that comes out of this. Um, you get you get strange things that happen. You get a mafia owning the bar system um, when things like this happen. So uh, that's the end of my presentation. Steve um, is going to be joining me for the Q&A. If you have any questions, uh, we're happy to answer. I have a couple of opening questions to Steve, um, and if you can join me here, that'd be great. And to those of you who don't know, Steve, of course, is a, a longtime um, LGBT activist and journalist. And he was in New York City when um, Stonewall happened, and he was in New York in the 70s as well. Um, And, Steve, one thing that you had mentioned to me is that you had said that the immediate after-effect of Stonewall um, was not that apparent. And could you just talk for a minute about about that? Yeah, uh,
5: I was in Stonewall. I was in New York when this all happened, which is amazing since I was minus 11 at the time. (laughs) Oh, (laughs)
4: sorry. But... But, uh,
5: (laughs) But I did have a good memory. I wasn't really out, so I really didn't lock in on what actually happened when this broke out. But it is interesting to note, uh, to keep in mind the, in perspective what actually New York City was like at that particular time, uh, it was during the, in the 60s when this whole country was in turmoil. It was just a year or so removed from the riots that took place after Martin Luther King's assassination. Then you had two months after that assassination, you had Bobby Kennedy was shot. Uh, you had the Vietnam protests. You had all these things going on. And at that time, the miracle New York Mets were on the way to winning a pennant. So the, the, the people in New York were not totally, you know, clued into what's going on with a, with a little skirmish. You get average of five to ten murders a day. And, and with all this turmoil and with all these social, social unrest that took place, something that might have happened in the village is not going to make big news. Uh, it didn't make big news. Uh, for, for example, uh, there are two things that struck me about this. Once, one is the low-key coverage of it. Uh, the New York Times called this on, in their Sunday paper. The headline said, Four Policemen Hurt in Village Raid, and they referred to the uh, rebellion as a rampage. The Village Voice, which was always considered a, now considered a very pro-gay uh, publication, at that time ridiculed Uh, the the demonstrators and and the rebels, and they referred to them as fag follies, referred to the riot as fag follies in their story, and those who uh, were involved in the uh, rioting was called Forces of Faggotry. This is from the Village Voice. So that leaves you with another great paper, the New York Daily News, who is certainly uh, not shy about admitting their tabloid and hysteria when any type of news comes by, uh, they, their headline was, and this came out a week later, uh, homo nest rated queen bees are stinging mad. <laughs> that was their headline. And this is, and they basically blamed everyone and, and, you know, ostracized the folks and this, including the New York times did the same thing. So in, in the print media, it was either given, uh, very little coverage or negative coverage at all. And I don't think it made the TV news at all. And don't forget back in those days, it was TV, radio, and newspapers, that was it. No internet, no other way of getting news. So it was quite limited in, in that respect. And uh, it was, you know, for something that became monumental, only until a year later when they were, well, up until the year later, when they were forming a commemorative march in, in Manhattan on the one-year anniversary of, of Stonewall, did it become then elevated to a monumental event. But up until then, it's just another day in New York.
2: And, and you also did some original reporting on, on this. Uh, could you just talk briefly about what you found
5: out? Yes. Uh, back in 1981, somebody, uh, when I was writing for the Baltimore Gate Paper at the time, uh, somebody got in touch with me and referred me to a bartender, uh, someone who claimed to be a bartender at Stonewall during the night of the raid. Uh, I got in touch with him, met with him. Uh, this is like 12 years after the, the, the event, and spoke to him about what actually went on. I believed he was totally legitimate because a lot of the facts he told me during that interview uh, were consistent with uh, facts that came out later from publications that were done by actual historians who did the research, did the other interviews, and so there was a, a great deal of consistency from what he told me. But he was the first person I ever knew that was in Stonewall at the time, and probably one of the first interviews that ever took place from someone who was actually working in, in the bar. That night, Uh, He was there with three other bartenders, and the police was, as as you mentioned earlier, got paid off about a half hour earlier. There was a man at the bar who he did not recognize but seemed very suspicious. He was sitting there. He served him a drink, and then the red flag flew up, and he said to himself he thought this was probably an undercover policeman. He tried to give a hand signal to the other three bartenders to ke- uh, clear their register and get out, but it was too late. As soon as it was discovered in his mind and his hand signaling, the door banged, and that's what happened. And what made this particular raid unusual and what made it uh, particularly troublesome to the patrons was that was, this was one of the rare times that they actually, police actually asked for IDs. They otherwise would not, and they... By doing this, they felt this was extra harassment. This might have put a lot of people over the edge. So that's that's what happened. Sure.
2: Um, Does anybody have any questions, comments, insults? Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead.
6: Um, I hate to disagree, but I remember I didn't know anything about gays or the village or anything like that. I was 19. I lived in uh, D.C. There were three daily newspapers at the time. And I distinctly remember reading a story about it, and I think it was probably, I'm assuming it was a wire service photo, a stone wall and the crowds and the cops. And that was pretty close to when it happened. Maybe it was a weekend thing, you know, a Sunday paper, I'm not sure. But I know that there was a story, uh, because I had, my brother had a, a couple friends that went to NYU and Columbia, and I heard, you know, a couple of weeks later, they were home for the summer, and I heard them talking about it because they just hung out in the village in drecked. I don't know if there was a but So there was little coverage, at least. Oh, I didn't say the there news wasn't. News. I said
5: there were stories, and I gave you the headlines from which. Yeah. What I think it was a they,
6: D.C. paper, though.
5: Oh, it, it may have gone national. I, You know, at the time, I'm just talking about from the New York perspective, it was yeah. not. It did get national news later on, absolutely. Yeah, it was probably it a did.
6: wire service story, most likely. Could be.
5: Anything else? Yep.
6: Yeah, about 10
2: years later, from 1969 to 1970, then you had the AIDS epidemic came out all across major cities in the United States. Do you know any indication of that? It was connected to the, um, the um, Stonewall Rebellion when there was a, a reason to inject, or should I say, uh, cause the AIDS epidemic to occur because they were against homosexuals? I have no research on that topic
5: i never heard of that theory. It was actually in 80 when it was first case reported, but that's... I mean, it,
6: could it have been done? Research could have been, um, occurred that created to situate the AIDS epidemic?
5: Created the AIDS epidemic? No, i never heard of that.
6: Through laboratory experimentations.
5: Some people may think that, but I don't think there's any evidence to support it.
2: I've read evidence of it. That's why I'm asking. Do you know anything about it? No. That? We know nothing about it. Any, any other things?
6: Yep. Yeah, in that first movie clip with, uh, I think it was Jake Carroll Nash and Ed Wynn. Yeah. And the little guy, the little comic fellow. Yeah. Is that Jimmy Durante? It is
2: Jimmy Durante. <laughs> Good call. I read. <laughs> that's Jimmy Durante.
6: In a biography of Al Smith, uh, you know, who of course came from the world's yeah. side, uh, there's some stuff in there where Jimmy Durante is quoted as a young man in the teens as a piano player at bars saying that, yeah, there were a lot of gays around and nobody cared. We just sort of, you know, we hung out with him and we just said, oh, he's kind of that way. And he said it was no big deal. And Jimmy Durante, uh, you know, and this was years later, obviously, he said, I never understood why anybody cared.
2: No, you're absolutely right. It's a great point. We often forget, George Chauncey has brought this up, is that because our generation... Um, Lived through the closet, which is 1930 to 80. You you pick the end date, but 1930s onward, we forget the the era before that was very open. And yeah, absolutely, people there were gay people around. Um, they people had sex between two men had sex, and they wouldn't uh, necessarily call themselves gay. Um, the term wasn't they didn't use it like we use it today. Um, and absolutely, there are a lot of entertainers. Jimmy Durante. So, I've heard, read some other, uh, from other good, good uh, autobiographies stories, which this comes up. They say there were a lot. Of, there are a lot of uh, gay entertainers. There, and it was, it was not even closeted. Even
6: yeah, it was
2: not uh, closeted.
6: George Jessel, who toward the end of his life became this insane right winger, I read a similar quote by him, but back in that time.
2: Yeah, it was common, common knowledge. Yeah. Is there any truth at all to the
4: Riots. had something to do with the death of Judy Garland, or that Judy Garland's last
5: health was somehow connected to the Well, they were just, there was a funeral just a few days before the riots that had the gay community distraught and angered by it. You know, angered by her death. She was definitely considered a, a major icon, and uh, but I don't know if, if that. I don't know if anyone could actually say for sure that was a connection. It could have been a factor. That you know, all these things building up and here come the police again. So
2: Yeah, I have heard that too. I've had people mentioning that, but I, but um it's really hard to draw the the causal effect. You know what I mean? Like it may have been in the air, right? But right. but it's hard, you know, this many decades later to say I was really upset because you know, the death of Judy Gore. You know, it was really but yeah, I they may be. Maybe. I
4: have a bit of a question. So you're saying that there were there were bars that were gay places.
2: There gay bars and nightclubs that were not owned by the Mafia during the century, is that correct? I mean- not really. Okay. Uh, not no. Uh, in the village, no, there were not. Okay? The village was owned by the Genovese family or their members. Now, as you as you get further north, it changes a little bit. Everybody's paying off the cops though. Okay? There's no such thing as people not paying off the cops because the cops would would just would shut the place down. Okay. Now, was there always organized crime? Most of the time there was, but I don't want to say always. I'll give you some other examples. Out on Long Island, um, it's run by the Gambino family, not by the Genovese family. So the Gambinos run the gay bars out, out, out on Long Island. In Times Square, it's, it's kind of a mix, um, and then there are occasionally just gangsters. Also, you know, there are non Italian Jewish gangsters as well that were making the payoffs. It's just that the mafia was so strong in this era that they coincided with the era of the closet. Like they were the strongest then. So to answer it, it's, you know, it's hard to know for sure. The majority certainly were mafia owned, the rest of them had, were making payoffs, and many of those were connected to organized crime, too.
4: Do you know if and Steve can probably answer this as well? If this was also um, epidemic, and a, a, a evidence also maybe of the bars in maybe DC or the larger other larger cities, um, if if, mafia, if they were off the other cities as well.
2: You, I did right. do some research into this because I thought this was a great question. I'm glad you, that you asked it. Um, Philadelphia, yes. This, yeah. The Mafia owned the, owned the gay bars in Philadelphia. This was well known by the Scarfo family. Um, in Chicago, very much so. OK? In fact, some people, I have been told uh, in recent weeks that they, they still are involved in some gay bars oh. in, in Chicago. So yes, yeah, so Chicago can out, outclass any even corruption. So, so um, yes, I have heard not in San Francisco, interestingly enough, not in Baltimore. Um, it's interesting enough. I've 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 talked to enough people here who've had the experience, and nobody reckon, me- remembers the mafia being involved in gay bars in, in Baltimore. It doesn't not to say that there weren't any ever, but it doesn't sound like there was not there wasn't a family here. Yeah. Um,
4: you think like DC? DC, I'm
2: I have no idea. There was no mafia in D.C., so probably Los not. Los, Los Angeles, there was some, some too. There was yeah, it was politics, yeah yeah. It, really, it was really a function of the repression. It really is how repressive the, the city was, is that the most repressive cities, ironically, had the mafia. The least repressive cities didn't. so:
6: was, um, You mentioned the anti-gay laws that came in immediately after prohibition. Do you consider that, or was that part of, like, the whole sort of long wave of Puritanism with the 1914 Narcotics Act and then the Volstead Act of Prohibition, and it's like, you know, if you get high or you have fun, forget it, it's illegal?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's a question that they're still they're writing, like, dissertations about, even today. Okay, they're trying to figure out why in 1933 does, does this clause that get imposed. Um, that's one theory. Um, that, that some people advanced There are other theories. Some people say that is because of the jo- loss of job loss and fear of loss of masculinity. There was uh, backlash against homosexuality. Some people just didn't like gangsterism, and they associated gay people with gangsterism because of the because of the because of the bars. But no one really. They're still debating this. It's one of these large scale social things, and we don't we don't know the answer uh, really. So. I'm wondering, though, that I was
4: thinking about the show Cabaret that the same thing happened in Germany. So, I see a parallel there that you had very open and and more embracing societies and then all of a sudden Hitler is rising to power and let's see what's going on here in America. Of course, we're just all the little people that sit here and watch it happen to all of us. But, there's an example of a country that is just was amazing in the arts, amazing in their thinking. Um, and then all of a sudden, they
2: actually fed on themselves. Yeah no, Ber- Berlin rivaled New York for the gay culture. In fact, some people thought it surpassed it. Um, it was pretty amazing, and then there, as you said, you know the Nazis come along and that's all destroyed. I think it, there, it, it brings to a larger point, we always assume there's progress. But we should not always assume that that's the case. Um, there are backlashes. I like to think that we've changed and turned to corn, but I don't, you know, who do I know? I don't know, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's a great point. Like, uh, there, there is that theory as well, that it was, a, it was a gigantic backlash against the excesses of prohibition. So...
4: It's interesting at the same time that, that the prohibition happened in these laws... Was also the MPAA was made, was even cracking down even more so on what was allowed to be in film.
2: I didn't get a chance to go into this really, but the reason that we have these films because there was no code yeah. through nineteen thirties. Okay, these would have never made the code in nineteen forties or fifties. Okay, so they were they were it was the censorship. The you know Chauncey talks about this too. The censorship included to film. If anybody's seen you know. Vito Russo's celluloid closet. There, you see the enormous um, treasure trove uh, of of gay people in film, and then the closet, the code, the code, and they're sort of suppressed. They're still there, but they have to go through code. You know, like Spartacus scene and all these other coded scenes that come along, and then it's only really now that it's just you know gradually coming back to what is in 1933. You know, so.
6: Those people who are highly visible, who are performers in the Pansy Acts, who are well known not just within the gay community but also within the broader straight community, how did they manage this transition when these laws were imposed? Because it's not like you can suddenly go from being a known homosexual to an unknown
2: homosexual. It's a great point, and it's actually a lot of sad stories, to be totally candid with you. Gladys Bentley, the African American woman, she is. She is very successful as a pansy act show in Harlem, and then the closet comes along. She is not allowed to act anymore. She um, tries to quote go straight. She was an out lesbian. She goes straight. She has a couple disastrous marriages, and she dies at a young age. Okay, Gene um, Malin has a car accident. We don't know exactly the cause of it, but he dies young too. Um, they didn't. The, the short answer is they didn't know. Well. It was part of the destructive force of the closet is that the people on the front edge of that board, also the board of the front edge, you know, the, the, the brunt of it as well. So they didn't, the, the short answer is they didn't transition well for the most part.
5: Alan. Uh for the folks who uh, were, were dressing in drag to perform, was it always an automatic assumption that the person was gay?
2: No, that's a great point too. You know, Gene Malin always, actually always um, identified as a man. He uh, and he um, were not even one hundred percent sure, you know, that he was gay. Believe it or not, um, but it was not. It was considered a show. Now, were most of them yes, probably, um, and we know that many of them were. But it was it was a performance, or it was, it was performance art, and they were less threatened in that era um, by by having these shows than they would have been today. You wouldn't have automatically lost your masculinity as, as 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 you would have later on. So,
3: do you think that, that might have possibly something to do with the fact that,
0: um, especially in the, the Asian culture, women weren't allowed to act? So, any
3: act that portrayed a woman was still a man dressed as a woman. Would that have played a
6: part in some of?
2: Ooh, that's a that's
5: yeah. Kind of
2: that's some deep psychology. I don't know if I can give you. I don't know if I can give you a good answer right now. I had to think about that, but I think that's a great, great point. I think there is some of that. I mean, the, you know, the fairy character that I showed at the beginning of that was considered an intermediate sex. Okay, so they weren't like a fully fledged homosexual who just happened to be attracted to men. They were another gender. Okay, and so that was another way to sort of deflect. Some of the sexual activity, it wouldn't it'd be harmless, right? It's just a fairy, right? Um, and so that was another way. But that's a, D, I can't answer that beyond that.
4: Um, yeah, that brings back, uh, brings to my mind, down through history, there have been, uh, in uh, England, when women were not allowed to be on stage, men played all the roles. A lot of those men, there were many men that were the, that middle gender, because they had performed as women their entire lives, and though they, were attracted to women, they weren't viewed as men because they had played the role for so long. And then when the king comes along and says, you all can't do this anymore, women can come on the stage. Those men, those men destroyed also. We have a this is something that goes in through history. Uh, though we're dealing with this right now, there has always been this uh, embracing closet. Embracing closet. I think it's just people
2: are so afraid to be themselves. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I have nothing to add to it. I think it's a yeah, great point. Be yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. yeah. yeah have, you know, was this panic just in New York?
2: No, this was nationwide. It was a crate. It was in Baltimore. There were. Oh the state laws Oh I'm sorry that, the, the state law They were state by state So that's why You have the ver- That's why you had The variation That's why New York Is so intense Because New York Has the most Anti-gay laws um, Other cities Have less um, Enforcement of, of anti-gay laws Yes, he did It's complicated Vito, Vito Russo does a celluloid closet in this um, They got away with it to the extent Because everybody loved Milton Berle And they knew him first as not As being gay, they knew him as being a straight guy Okay, and so he could get away with with those acts that, frankly, a gay person could not have gotten away with. Um, it's complicated. Vito Russo goes into this. There's all these coded messages that are going on, um, and you know, it, 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 it's a complicated situation. But you know, for for, for this, for, I was looking at sort of the street level reality of gay people in on the streets of New York City. It. It may have been very different with people in Hollywood. It may have even been different in some cases with the coded messages on TV. Yeah, I mean, sort of like action, right? there. Absolutely, there you go. You have two men. You have men dressed in drag. Um, you know, there. 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 Uh, Spencer Tracy does um, plays a, a you know, sort of a, a fairy in in one of his movies. Um, there is actually a lot of, of famous actors that had. Um, some bits that that, that involve you know passing or acting gay, quote unquote. Let's take one more. One time. more, and then we're done. Yep. There was an organization that I found out back in the sixties called the Jewel Box Review. Yep, I know of it. African American group, yeah, Yep. Type yep. I, I don't know what happened to them, but that was a presentation. They uh, he what what the gentleman's talking about? It was called the Jewel Box Review. They would go around. Um, they would do a lot of, of cross dressing, and they do these elaborate shows. They were uh, uh, they would go from city to city, and wildly popular. They would go they would go around and sort of legendary because they weren't really advertised, you know. But but you but, but people would find out about them and, and go to them. But you're absolutely right. The 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 box review, yes, was very active for I think 30 years. Yeah, so I think that's it.
6: Thank you.